Right, so this is the fourth episode of Turning Earth. Um, it's the first one in over a year and a half. And for this one, instead of focusing on a particular topic, we're just going to kind of have a review of the last year of 2016. So what we're going to talk about in this episode will be, um, first of all, the fact that 2016 was a historic year in that it's been the hottest year on record since, since records began in the 1880s. And it's also the first year that the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has stayed above 400 parts per million mm-hmm. for a significant period of time. And we'll, we'll get into what that means uh, when we get around to it. We'll then talk about um, Trump, President Trump, who's currently being, inaugur- being inaugurated. And, uh, and there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> uh, take a look at his, uh, his cabinet, who he's picked for his cabinet. And they're pretty much all climate change deniers, bar one, one or two people. Um, and then from that we'll take the a look. The important ones are basically. Yeah, yeah, the ones who, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. It's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and after that we look at our own government and what what they've done in relation to climate change over the last year, uh, following on from Enda Kenny's comments after the COP fifteen, into oh, the COP twenty one, sorry, in two thousand fifteen. So right, first of all, uh, four hundred parts per million. What does that mean? Well, basically the. The, this, these observations were being made at the, the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, uh, which is an atmospheric baseline station. So they they, they picked the, another one is the aptly named Cape Grim in Australia, <laughs> and they um they pick these stations based on how isolated they are. So this one's at the top of a mountain, so it's less likely to be affected by all know, sorts of pollution things or whatever, yeah. anything that will that will scupper up the data. Um, it's more of a baseline for the Earth, if you like. Essentially, yeah, yeah, and um. A fellow called uh, Joseph Keeling first started making these observations in relation to carbon dioxide in the 50s. And there's a thing now called the Keeling Curve, which is basically a line progressing ever upwards. And it's a a measurement of the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. When he first started measuring it, uh, sometime in the 50s, I think it was, um, carbon dioxide was at 317 parts per million. Uh, Right now, it's 406 parts per million. Um, and the reason why that's significant is because it hasn't gone down below that. It's it hasn't gone down now below staying that, that as, as, a, as a baseline, yeah. basically. 2016 was the hottest year on record since records began. And again, it was the first year where carbon dioxide stayed at this level um, consistently. And it de- according to the data we have now, it, it seems like it's not going to go below that in our lifetimes. Um, the 12 hottest years in record all occurred in the last 19 years. Uh, the top five occurred in the last seven, and of course, twenty sixteen was the hottest year on record since the eighteen eighties. Yeah, every time that a, a re- every time that um, information or new records and new records being broken in relation to the environment all the time in terms of temperature, in terms of temperature fluctuations, in terms of average temperature. I stress average for reasons that are important. We'll come to later, I'm sure. Every time there's a re- every time that a bit of news comes out about that, it's always been more extreme than what the climate scientists were predicting based on the amount of information that they had so they were basically right but it was even worse than what they predicted it was always at the most extreme end of what they predicted which is yeah the scary thing yeah it basically means that that the 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 worst case scenario that the the intergovernmental panel on climate change was warning about is is already here It's, it's already here it's not like something that might happen it's already happened um so the that that all this data has been monitored at a mauna loa um, which is run by the National Oceanography and Aeronautics Association, is that what they're called? The NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, sorry, something totally different. <laughs> um, 
mixing up at NASA. NASA also contributed a lot of data to this, but it's been published by uh, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which are, are based at the University of San Diego. And you can they produce all of this data at uh, Scripps, so that's C-R-I-P-P-S dot U-C-S-D dot E-D-U forward slash programs forward slash Keeling Curve. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that... Like they publish all this data on carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and it's all pretty digestible. Um, and I'll just read a little bit from an article that was produced on that website in May 2016. And it was the question: Why has a drop in global global CO2 emissions not caused CO2 levels in the atmosphere to stabilize? And I'll just read this verbatim: The ocean and land sinks for CO2 currently offset only about 50% of emissions. So, so, like an ocean, the ocean and land sinks are the parts of the geography that absorb CO2. So in the oceans, it's plankton and algae. On the land, it's trees or whatever. So they absorb, back to the back to the article, they absorb about 50% of emissions. So the equivalent of 50% of the emissions is still accumulating in the atmosphere, even with stable emissions. So to stabilize CO2 levels, we would require roughly an immediate 50% cut in emissions. That's an, an immediate 50% cut in emissions. And eventually additional emission emission cuts would be required because sinks will slowly lose their efficiency as the land and oceans start to saturate. So... Like anything else, it's not a limitless resource and we need to treat it as such. Yeah. So to, to offset... Like, we've heard the phrase tipping point in the past, the, the, the tipping point at which climate change will become out of control. And I don't think 400 parts per million means that, but it, it's definitely... The fact that it's not going back down as an average is an indicator of yeah. the situation on a whole getting worse. And it means that we can be certainly be sure that we're getting to that point. It's usually yeah. it's usually referenced in terms uh, of um, average temperature. Mm. As in, uh, again, average because there's a lot of confusion about it. There's a lot of, I think, intentional misinformation. Sorry, disinformation, I, yeah. I should say, about the fact that, oh, but it's really cold this winter. So you have some you know right-winger come along and say, it's been really cold this winter. And... Uh, uh, you know the temperature drops to something really low. So what's the story with global warming? Not understanding mm. either intentionally or whatever that the whole point of the actual effects of global warming means that the weather patterns become more extreme. Mm. So when it rains, it pours and floods. When it's hot, it roasts. And just to put things in, in perspective, so we're currently at four hundred parts per million CO two in the atmosphere. They they say that three hundred and fifty parts per million is a healthy amount. For, for you know for the, for life to continue <laughs> flourishing um, before the industrial we know now from um, uh, ice core records from, from uh, analysing trapped air in ice cores that before the industrial revolution we were at 200 parts per million 200 parts per million Oof. Uh, the industrial revolution obviously kicked that off but it's, there's been a major acceleration in the last half century yeah. It's, just, it's going kind of beyond now might be a good time to talk about because we were talking a little bit about um, people trying to obfuscate the climate argument climate change denial in other words and uh, the sort of cherry picking of information that goes on there um, or intentionally mis misrepresenting what the information means yeah. and mis misinterpreting the information you know which I feel now is going to get worse especially recently we've seen you know the rise of what's referred to as the alt-right, which is basically, you know, fascism and Nazism. That's exactly what it is, but, you know, whether people like to admit that or not. Mm. And um, you have, like, news sources. I mean, 
I've seen I've seen like uh, joke accounts of, of people who are basically outright saying basically that they using news sources like Breitbart which is a disgraceful disgraceful disinformation website and Infowars that's that guy what's his name um, Alex Jones yeah Alex yeah. Jones that kind of thing like off the wall just absolute nonsense and the lowest you couldn't even call it journalism I mean it's the lowest uh, kind of standard of writing you'd ever even think of mm. but they do things like like I mentioned that earlier oh it's really cold this winter so global warming is a lie that kind of thing like yeah. just absolute gutter level you know stuff yeah. there's going to be more of that now with the rise of um, and of course you know or mentioned you know for the day that's in it all because Trump has been made uh, president and also they have of the United States not of the world well kind of of the world you know what I mean mm. but <laughs> but uh, we're going to have to contend with a lot more of that it's become more kind of mainstream and more acceptable yeah. that kind of disinformation when it comes to the climate and everything that comes with the extreme right which is big time on the rise right now yeah. we have a challenge in front of us I would say definitely definitely and like one article an example I have here is from the, the Mail on Sunday which uh, basically was saying uh, stunning new data was in the headline <laughs> indicates that an El Nino uh, event uh, was driving record highs in global temperature suggesting that man-made emissions weren't responsible for it and a wonderfully crafted article in the sense that it didn't outright deny climate change but it just cast doubt over it using very selectively chosen data so yeah. instead of looking at how temperatures have risen over the last 20 years it just looked at within a year and indeed during the El Nino event temperature went up and then went back down again the average temperature but if you look at that relative to the previous 50 years temperature has been like you just have to look at the data you know what I mean like that 12 hottest years in record all occurred in the last 19 years yeah that's you, but that's but saying that taking that taking that this El Nino which has been very extreme and does a lot of damage by the way and saying that oh yeah well I mean you know the temperature rise on average because of this natural event which occurs naturally it, it has always occurred it, by the way like like climate changing it does happen by itself yeah. But that's again. There's obfuscation going on there. Mm. But but specifically with El Nino is very interesting because you know from the information that I I, I was receiving about El Nino, um, basically um, climate change makes it, it happens. But climate change makes it happen more often, and makes mm. it more ex potentially more extreme as well. So it's the direct opposite of what they're trying to yeah, yeah. trying to make the case there. You know, like climate change itself. Clim climate change would happen naturally without inter interference like you know in a gradual in the same way the ice age happened in the past it wasn't because of human uh, activity then but it's 100% because of acti human activity now yeah, yeah. and that that is all, like, signs, all signs point to that anyway yeah. it's absolutely mm. a fact there is no question about it mm. you know and when you have this is what we're going to come to a bit later when you have people who are in positions of power or come into positions of power now and they're very clever in the way they use their words they're saying you know they don't necessarily outright deny that it's happening mm. but they try to make it seem as if well you know it would be happening anyway you know, climate change would always kind of happen and stuff mm. it you know there is consensus amongst like 95 99% of climate scientists that humans are causing this to happen now in a very extreme way and it's directly related to human activity anybody who says otherwise is a liar mm. and they're intentional and they have and the people who say that have some kind of connection to either coal industries or other industries, uh, oil and gas. And, you know, I mean, even mm. it, I swear to God, if you look at like the likes of British Petroleum or um, Shell and other companies, they eventually, I mean, for a long time, obviously, they, they were like that. 
They came to the point where just to be taken seriously amongst the scientific community, they and and their scientists admitted everything that we would say that that you know climate change is human made, is man made, mm. is um, is extreme, is a problem, and you know they well, I mean they might not agree about what should be done about it, but they wouldn't even deny it. They wouldn't even say say that that some of these policymakers that are coming in now in the Trump administration saying, well you know it's not really you know human related. It one hundred percent is, one hundred percent is, and it's. If you don't believe us, we can provide the information to prove it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, so I suppose now we can move on to talking about um, President Trump's uh, cabinet. But uh, before we do that, I'll, just, I'll read, read this quote, which kind of sums up what we're talking about in relation to CO2 in the atmosphere. It's from a, a page on NASA's website. It's just a bunch of different scientists reaction reacting to the... To the, to the news that for, we've reached this milestone or whatever. And this is just Dr. Erica Podest. She's a carbon and water cycle research scientist. Uh, CO2 concentrations haven't been this high in millions of years. Even more alarming is the rate of increase in the last five decades and the fact that CO2 stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years. This milestone is a wake-up call that our actions in response to climate change need to match the persistent rise in CO2. Climate change is a threat to life on Earth, and we can no longer afford to be spectators. And I just I like I like that line about it. Our our actions in response to climate change need to match the rise in CO two. Because mm. right now, like it's it's like like since the start of the industrial revolution, industrial revolution to this point, it's just been like an ever increasing exponential growth in CO two production. Yeah. And the fact that like now there's like there's loads of people doing really amazing things to try and counteract this. But there's still not enough people, and there's still people who are like suggesting that maybe we don't even need to do that. Like, we how? Why are we still having this conversation? You know, why aren't we just thinking about what's the best way to deal with it? Rather, well, do we need to deal with it? We obviously need to deal with it. So, a very big part of the reason for that, as far as I can see, is the fact that, you know, those policymakers, those powerful people, those ex- extremely, extremely wealthy people. We're coming into positions of power now, and who have been, mm. and you know the likes of our Exxon Mobiles, our Royal Dutch Shells, and that they have a financial and commercial interest in continuing to take as much gas, coal, etc., 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 as they can, and just keep even even being fully aware of the consequences. By the way, yeah, it's in their commercial and financial interest to do so. Speaking of, so which, you're literally fighting, you know capitalism basically yeah. you're literally fighting yeah. like concentration of wealth and that's you know think about that like yeah. you're talking about billionaires here you think they're going to give up their access to something that's going to make them billions just like that just be yeah even if it destroys the world you mentioned exxon mobile there and uh covering up or like knowing the problems and not dealing with them um and that's particularly relevant on this day because we know this is what is it friday the Friday the 20th of January and President Trump is getting sworn in or got sworn in a few hours ago and the man he is he has appointed as Secretary of State Rex Tillerson Rex Tillerson was the former CEO of ExxonMobil and ExxonMobil have a, a particularly interesting history in that they funded a lot of um, climate change research in the 70s and they knew well before a lot of us did the degree to which fossil fuels were contributing to um CO2 emissions and to climate change and to all these problems that are now coming to fruition. And for a few years, they seemed like they were doing something about it. And then the 80s, they changed tack very quickly. 
and uh, instead of funding the climate change research, they cut that and started funding basically false propaganda, suggesting that you know that uh, CO two isn't that big of a deal. You know what I mean? So yeah. having 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 found this information at a pretty critical point, they decided instead of doing something positive with it, they would hide it and continue producing CO two. Yeah. Um, that's a psychopathic thing to do, but they, they did that anyway. anyway. Anyway, that's okay. I'm not going to give my opinion anymore on that. But basically, this guy is now the Secretary of State. The State Department uh, represents the United States in... Um, John Kerry is the Secretary of State. Yeah. So it's basically going to be Rex Tillerson going to represent America at the next COP summit. They've an in, yeah, they've, he's an international <laughs> role. Yeah. He's an international role, yeah. That's a scary thought. I mean, are they even going to attend it? Do you know? Like, yeah. I mean, they're taking this kind of isolationist kind of, yeah. kind of tack, you know. That which is that's an attitude that's gaining traction all over the world at the minute, and it's it's the exact opposite of what we need because what we need is unity yeah. across national borders to 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 tackle what is a global issue. I mean, there hasn't even been enough up until this point. I mean, there was there's any time there was like a cop summit, usually it ended in disappointment. And even when it ended in some level of agreement, it never really was kind of, I think it was recently when they had the Marrakesh summit and it was ongoing when Trump was elected and pretty much when he was elected, they just kind of gave up. I think the point of that was that they were going to put some kind of teeth on the Paris Agreement. Because right now, none of that stuff is legally binding. It's just... Exactly. It's just just a meaningless agreement. I mean, not meaningless, but it's just an agreement. It's not... It's based on the good faith of... Exactly, which you states, can't, which, which you, you cannot, can't, which yeah. means nothing. There's no good faith. Um, there's no good faith without consequences. There has to be consequences. But apparently, you know, as soon as Trump was elected, they just more or less just left. They just more or less just said, there's no point now. Because without America's buy-in, I mean, they're the biggest contributors. They're the biggest polluters. They're the biggest, they're the ones you need to have on board more than any other country. Mm. So... Um, Scary times with you know Trump being elected, really. Yeah, yeah no, he, he he has backtracked a, a little bit, like from tweeting about climate change being a hoax made up by the Chinese. He's now saying, well, it's worth considering because it because it might affect U.S. companies and their profits and stuff like this. But it's not. He's still there's like it's not it's not a positive thing. He's just he's just like I don't know. It's very tricky to interpret anything that he says. Mm. Because he says one thing and then he says something else shortly afterwards. He did the same thing with nuclear weapons, by the way. He said two diametrically opposing things. <laughs> he said he said at one stage, or a while ago, initially he said we need to, and this is actually scary. He's saying we need to up, we need to have so many more nuclear weapons and become really you know, powerful so we can threaten the whole world. And then a couple of weeks ago, he said the exact opposite of that and said that he basically said that he would like to come to an agreement with Russia because he loves Russia so much. Apparently, I don't know how much is that, you know, propaganda or whatever, but he loves Putin a lot. And uh, he said that he would love to have an agreement with Russia that they would both mutually decrease their nuclear uh, uh, arsenals at, you know, at the same time or together or whatever. And in exchange for that, he would... um, uh, get rid of some of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. A lot of sanctions, have been, mm. uh, economic sanctions, have been imposed in, on Russia. But how do you interpret that when he says 
these it's crazy different things you know yeah, yeah. and I wouldn't put any faith in it given that as it, as you know he's put climates uh, change now as the head of so uh, and that's one thing we were going to talk about was who's put at the head of the EPA uh, which is mm. extremely scary this guy called Scott Pr- I'm not sure Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt he he is now the head of the EPA before he was the head of the EPA he was trying to sue the EPA yeah because of he the, was the, the attorney general as far as I know by he's a solicitor by trade as far as I know and for Oklahoma and he tried multiple times apparently unsuccessfully to sue the EPA they were trying to introduce a clean power plan the CPP mm. and basically to limit all sorts of pollutants that were coming into the atmosphere because of the generation of power. Things like mercury, that kind of, like mercury, which is extremely dangerous and, you know, retro, you know, it's, you know, it's, it should be old hat at this stage kind of thing. It's mm. so incredibly dangerous. So it's almost like mercury is like in the category of like a best, asbestos or something in terms of dangerousness in that, you know, cancer causing, you know, all that stuff. So, um, he tried to sue them multiple times and failed multiple times, but he'll get the last laugh now because that organisation that he tried to sue, now he's going to become the head of this federal agency. And so what is he, you know, what is he going to do with this, at the helm of them? Like, mm-hmm. like you know, climate scientists are not going to suddenly just, I mean, they might be forced in some way by their administration to stop saying certain things or whatever, but, you know, there's 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 resistance going on. Yeah, yeah. Look, what you're saying, it reminds me of, um, this happened a, a few weeks ago before Trump was sworn in as president that um, uh, his transition team, whatever, made a request to the Department of Interior uh, for information on any of their employees who had worked in relation to climate change, who had worked on research in relation to climate change. And the response the Department of Interior gave was, uh, no, we're not going to give you that information. And here's all the reasons why it's illegal for us to give you that information. And also here's the ethical reasons why we're not going to supply you with that information. Yeah. And Pretty um, obvious what they would want to do with that. Well, yeah, I mean, get get rid of them, you know, find some reason to fire them. Yeah, you, you Immediately. Um, or as soon as they can practically do it. And in relation to that, there was an article written in the Washington Post, I think it was, by Michael Mann, who's a a professor of atmospheric science and he's the director of the Earth's Earth System Science Centre at Penn State University. Uh, I'll just read this quote from Michael Mann now. Um, it's quite a long one, but it's it's, it's revelatory, I think. Uh, we are afraid that four, possibly eight years of denial and delay might commit the planet to not just feet, but yards of sea level rise, massive coastal flooding, historic deluges and a summer after summer of devastating heat and drought across the country. We also fear an era of McCarthyist attacks on our work and our integrity. It's easy to envision because we've seen it all before. We know we could be hauled up into Congress to face hostile questioning from climate change deniers. We know we could be publicly vilified by politicians. We know we could be at the receiving end of federal subpoenas demanding our personal emails. We know we could see our research grants audited or revoked. I faced all those things a decade ago the last time Republicans had full control of our government. Yeah. So... So that that's that that's it's a sobering quote for me because I I'm kind of becoming. I think I'm becoming kind of overwhelmed by the like, the ridiculousness of the situation, which is that we've got this clown who plays a millionaire on TV, as a friend of mine said recently, um, who is now the leader of the biggest, the most powerful country in the world for all intents and purposes, and he's appointed all of these people who 
are taking a completely, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt, they're, they're having a head in the sand view on climate change. That, you know, it, it seems, I don't know, I'm trying not to use alarmist language here, but they're, they're basically not, not acknowledging... It's kind of hard not to, to be honest. Not acknowledging the problem. Um, so that quote is sobering for me in that he says, well, this has happened before. Last, like, Republicans have had control before and there's been the same amount of climate change deniers in power. What's different now, though, is that it's it's 2017. 2016 was the hottest year on record. We've already reached this point. Things have changed, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, the predictions that climate change scientists and, like, hippies and environmentalists and all those people that you're not supposed to listen to have been making for the last 10 yeah. years. The things they were saying do not even, like... They, they weren't saying enough, basically. Things are way worse than yeah. we thought they were. Yeah, absolutely. And now this has happened. Yeah. Um... And it just seemed like up until recently we were getting to a point where maybe the message was... Well, actually, in fairness, climate change seems to have kind of gone off the lot of the political agendas of various countries recently, mm. which we're all guilty of to a certain point, I think. But even though gone off the agenda, it seemed there had been... I got the impression, maybe I was wrong, that there had been more and more agreement about the fact that how serious it was. It seemed to be penetrating the, the psyche of, of everybody a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. But now... If it seems to potentially come back back on the agenda, if it comes back on at all, now you have this rise of the extreme extreme right, who will just go in the exact opposite direction, mm. who all they care about is preserving their privilege and you know a lot of it rich you know money, and just that's the only thing that matters is that coal makes money, gas makes money, and we, the only thing we care about is yeah. is that one thing that happened actually we've been talking about a lot of really like. Uh, negative and scary things have been happening one thing that happened recently that made me very very hopeful was something that something like 50 million trees or something like that something crazy number like that were planted in like a day or a week or something like that in India right. in a country where you have cities like New Delhi that are so badly polluted that people are like having very serious health problems you know mm. but um, I don't I'm not really up on the details but like 50 million trees in the space of a day or something like that because they coordinated it. And they, there's your carbon sink right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a fresh carbon sink for you right there. Seriously. Yeah. You know? So that kind of thing. I mean, that's just a very, very small kind of flat example, but a big one. You know what mm. I mean? In, in an extremely populated country. Yeah. But in a country that needed it as much as any country. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If that kind of thing is possible, you know, why can we not, instead of this... I mean, Enda Kenny wants to... You know, he was saying that uh, at at the end of uh, COP fifty, uh, COP twenty one. Sorry, that he oh, yeah, COP twenty one in uh, Paris, which is when this, which is when it seemed like significant nations were actually starting to agree on things and might actually start make some positive. Things steps. starting to coalesce a little bit. He said, um, "We're not going." He change. said some vaguely kind of conciliatory things, like, "Yeah, it's all really bad, and I agree with all the things that all the important people said." Um, Please don't hurt me. Um, but uh, climate change isn't our priority because we want we want to increase dairy production by twenty twenty. So instead of like aiming for reducing our carbon emissions by twenty twenty, we're going to instead focus on produce increasing dairy production. And at, at the moment, um, uh, dairy farming accounts for thirty percent of our emissions. I think so. That's like methane, CO two, whatever. And he said a a, a really farcical thing, which was that. Um, 
our our emissions will be offset by our carbon sinks and he referenced our bog land and our forestry now we can get onto the bogs in a minute but our forests I mean they're we're, not they're, substantial they're trying to sell quilts you know? like, I mean we've, yeah, Ireland is not known for its, its, its dense forests you know we've got very little if any old growth left they were all destroyed to make way for farmland a long time ago yeah yeah so We've already destroyed them to make. Uh, yeah, he, no, he, he's he's talking shite. Yeah, that's that's total nonsense. Obviously, you know. Yeah. And in reference to boglands, okay, so they've put these various measures in place so that people can't cut the cut the bit of turf that they would traditionally have rights over. But, like, I don't, I, I do not believe for a second that Borden and Mona are managing boglands in a sensible way. All we have to do is look at what they did in County Mayo when Shell had the lease of their land to insert the pipeline they moved tons upon tons of bog and just left it to rot basically in a holding site while yeah. simultaneously telling local farmers they weren't allowed to cut turf they just moved yeah what, turf, what gets the know? priority in that situation yeah. it was in in, in in the context of Mayo it was always shell yeah, yeah. and anything else the local people the environment anything else was just shat upon yeah. the only thing that mattered was this company came along and wanted to make private profits. That was the only thing that mattered. And we'll facilitate that, that no matter what. So taking that as an example, I, do, I don't think Mr. Kenny's comments about our carbon sinks, i.e. our forests and our bogland. We're meaningful we're or honest or anything a bit more, But yeah, I don't think there's much substance to them considering how, they've, how we've seen them been managed over the last decade or so. That yeah. Happened. No, but like... But that's very tricky straight off the bat because the same thing in Brazil with the the Amazon being destroyed at a rate of knots. Mm. They 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 take down and I have sympathy now with the farmers in fairness because they're fucking poor and they need to live. But they destroy this forget it print you know, putting in new trees or something that's very basic, you know, ancient rainforests with very complex ecology and they raise it and they destroy it. And why do they do that? Because they want to make beef. They want to raise cattle and have grass for them to graze on. Mm-hmm. You know? So those two things are diametrically opposed interests. You can't go, well, have this, it'll offset this. No, that isn't how it works. It's not how it works. That's why we have almost no forest in Ireland because it was destroyed a long time ago for exactly that reason. To farm the land. So he's talking through his fucking arse. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I'm sure he knows it. It was just something he could say that just sounded nice. Oh, but we'll be grand. You won't be grand. And uh, it won't be grand. <laughs> no, it won't. Right, so to focus our attention back to firmly back on Ireland and just to speak about what's been happening here for a while, you mentioned already that, uh, I don't know how many, so many million trees were planted in India. Around 50 or so. 50 million trees. Uh, there's a, well, a smaller but similar initiative in Ireland, which is the One Million Trees in One Day initiative. It's been, I think it's been... It's something to do with the, the Forestry Foundation and the Woodland Trust, I think. I think Friends of the Earth have something to do with it as well. But uh, if you want to learn how you can take part in that, you can go to one million trees in one day dot com, and uh, the next planting day is Saturday, the eleventh of February, and you can find all the information on that website as to how you can take part in that. Some that when I heard it, it just it's such a simple thing that is like needed to reverse the carbon processes or to. to to be a carbon sink basically. Yeah, yeah. To absorb it again, like just such a practical thing. And that's what we're going to look at a bit more now, because uh, of course one of the things, as we mentioned earlier, that Kenny said after or at the COP twenty one summit in twenty fifteen, was that it's grand for us to continue 
dairy farming because we've got all these wonderful carbon sinks such as our bogs and our forestry. So let's take a look yeah, at what went on in 2016 to, uh, I guess, to, to substantiate those claims. Um, one of the first acts of the new government uh, was in May 2016. They got rid of the Department of Environment. Um, yeah. Which, yeah... I guess a lot of people split up its its functions amongst other departments, which make it inconsistent and obviously of a much lesser importance inside those other departments. So yeah. that was a very depressing moment. Took the folks away from it. Yeah, uh, one of the so yeah, it was split up amongst the uh, Department of Housing and Planning, the Department of Communications, Climate Change and Natural Resources, and the Department of Regional Development and Rural Affairs. And after some some um, protests and I think petitions gotten together by various NGOs such as Antashka, they changed the name then of the department to. The Department of Communications, Climate Action and Environment. So instead of being the Department of Climate Change and Natural Resources, it went yeah. back to being the Department of Environment. But um, so that's uh, headed by Dennis, Minister Dennis Nocton. He's the minister for uh, for that department at the moment. Um, yeah, but it's a strange mix, isn't it? Like you know, uh, on a communications and climate change. I mean, like. What's the you know what's the overall angle there? It's just lumping things together that barely have you know they're only connected yeah. to a certain degree. You know, it's like how much of an afterthought does it need to be? Like you know, how unimportant does it need to be to be split yeah. into other departments and not have its own department? You know, yeah. like that was something that's very bad to suffer. We talk about people losing out because of money that's been lost due to the recession. You lose our entire environment. You know, like the the lack of prior prioritization is just insanity. Like yeah. So if we could look into what. I guess what Minister Nocton has been doing as a, as um, as part of Andy Kenny's cabinet, um, he's been fairly negative about solar energy, saying saying it would cost bill payers more, uh, because of le- uh, levies paying for subsidies. I'm mean, it's still kind of unclear as to how it would actually wind up costing people more. The general wisdom is that if people start producing solar energy, it'll actually earn the money because they can sell it back to the grid. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I guess it depends on how you develop it. I mean, maybe he's talking about having large solar farms rather than encouraging each household to have a solar panel or putting yeah. grants in place for that. He also, I mean, so Kenny talked about bogs being as important as uh, carbon sinks uh, to offset emissions from agriculture. Um, Minister Nocton has said that he, he supports the ESB continuing burning peat after 2019. The, yeah. the original uh, contracts for the peat burning power plants were up to 2019. And I thought, well, that that'd be a good point to stop doing that. But he said he supports them continuing after that. And of course, in January seventeenth of this year, it was announced that the uh, uh, various plants, I think three plants in the Midlands, uh, would continue burning peat until twenty thirty. Um, one of them would convert to biomass, which yeah. is biomass is mentioned in the in the what is it the the Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Act as something that would be encouraged. As a renewable source of energy, but it's it's really debatable as to how how you can consider biomass as a renewable. You know, you have to burn it, so you are releasing carbon out into yeah. the atmosphere. So it's not, um, yeah. it's 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 a bit deceptive, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's more renewable than coal or oil in the sense that trees it's grow renewable. back a bit quicker. But it's it it's studies are starting to show that it's 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 just as bad a pollutant, if not worse, than coal because it's way less efficient as well. Yeah, and. Um, well, like, there's no point doing damage to the environment now and then trying to offset it later by saying and saying that it, it contributes to a carbon sink. But for how long? Because, I mean, the wood gets chopped up and then burnt, do you know what I mean? It's not like they say yeah. trees for a very long time soaking up carbon. So it, it just doesn't work. 
doesn't make sense that's another issue is that they're they're having trouble actually sourcing even with the any kind of new tree planting initiatives that the the state might be encouraging they're like they're having trouble finding the trees nearby so there's talk of importing them from the southeastern United States which as we'll talk a bit about that later on but that's like obviously a really stupid idea it (laughs) doesn't make sense yeah yeah, I mean you're affecting forests in other parts of the world which then have to be shipped over here which you know you need to use fossil fuels to do that and then you burn them and it's just I don't know yeah it's not it's not very efficient overall use of energy no no no, renewable means like that you don't I mean renewable can be mean you can get it back but it's really important that we stop contributing to carbon out in the atmosphere that's mm. so crucial that's like the whole point really yeah no definitely um, so yeah so far the minister has said he's supports peat peat burning continuing en masse we're not talking about people burning peat in their own home after cutting it this is like huge yeah. huge quantities of it being burned industrial scale which yeah. I, those power plants only contribute to 2.5% of the grid by the way I don't know what the percentage of emissions yeah. they contribute but I imagine it's quite high yeah. and that's a small percentage of electricity to get out of it the argument that we, we are coming up against mostly though is um, is jobs and like jobs get, get brought up a lot when it comes to fossil fuel developments and they're like always spurious claims saying there'll be so many hundreds of jobs and really there'll be a few no. dozen but in this case there's already jobs there, so we can look at the real numbers. And for the peat burning power plants, there's around fifteen hundred jobs. I think like the guts of a thousand directly employed, and then another few hundred after that in industries related to it, so like currying or whatever. Um, and like biomass, converting the plant to biomass keeps those jobs as well. You know what I mean? Because it's very similar. The equipment they use will be slightly different, and the process will be slightly different, but it'll all be more or less the same. So the yeah. same people can be retrained and put into it. And that's an argument that can't just be dismissed because obviously those people need to be looked after and need to be kept in employment. But absolutely, yeah. that's part of that's part of the challenge, you know. Yeah. As environmentalists, I think. So we, we again we'll talk a bit a bit more about that that tension a bit later on when we're talking about forestry. Because we'll move on to that now in a minute. But um, ultimately, like the when we're talking about biomass, biomass is an emitter of car- carbon. We know that now. Uh, it, um. A study done in the Wall Street Journal of um well sorry it wasn't done in the Wall Street Journal it was published in the Wall Street Journal um it was a survey of one hundred and seven biomass power plants in the U S and found that seventy nine percent of them had violated air or water pollution standards in the the previous five years of the study, mm. um and just the like the, the logic doesn't stand up to scrutiny which is that the the trees you replant to replace the ones you've burnt will soak up the carbon of the ones you're burning but. It's, no. We need more energy than that, and it's that then that can give, and it's yeah, no, it it, it doesn't add up at all. It, no, it doesn't. Like you you burn way more trees. The than value having trees is having them grow longer, and then you end up with more diversity over yeah. time. You know, this kind of that's another, that's another problem as well. Is the is the industrial level of it's linked to food production, but the industrial level of I suppose tree production for this kind of purpose, and that industrial uh, you know agriculture in general, if you like, or in this case is forestry. But it's just not. Um, it's not good. It's in the long run. The whole point to have those trees is that over time they become more diverse, they become more powerful at sucking in the carbon too, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, and then you know it's straying a bit into permaculture there, but you know that that's that's what that's why the rainforest is so important. Mm-hmm. Therefore, hundreds or whatever thousands of years. Yeah. So it has like ecosystems that are incredibly strong and diverse, could last a long time. It's not like you just 
planted just a bunch of trees in the middle of the forest somewhere suddenly and a year later you have you still have this very bland just the same crop over and over again it's not sustainable by itself for lots it's of not reasons, sustainable you know? no. what's going to eat that you know what i mean what you know it, it needs to be diversity for any life to continue in, in such a situation yeah for, for life to be sustained you need a, a a diverse and vibrant ecosystem like a rainforest or an old growth forest and that can't be you just that can't be replicated quickly but to reduce it back to the, the carbon sink argument, which is kind of what all this seems to be about, even for that, there's just no comparison between an old forest with yeah. a variety of plants in it and a monocrop. Like it will it will take in some carbon, but it won't, it won't absorb nearly as much as a rainforest or an old growth forest, an old, yeah. a native oak forest or something like that, you know. So again, you, you like you mentioned earlier about the, the like the, the conflicting interests of farming versus forest forestry. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can't have both planting trees and cutting them down to burn them for energy and also planting trees for the sake of trees, for the sake of absorbing carbon, for the sake of a rich and healthy ecosystem. Those two things exactly. don't go together. Yeah, they, they don't go together. We need more like sophisticated uh, solutions to the problem than that. Yeah, we need, to, we need to plant trees that are going to be there long term. That's one simple enough thing really, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so while we're talking about tree planting, I guess it would make sense for us to start just talking about forestry more specifically. Um, since Enda Kenny brought it up himself, you yeah, know, he put the words in our mouth. So let's see where we can get with it. <laughs> um, before we go on to that, though, I just have the the figures I was look, looking at there uh, in relation to biomass. So the 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 it's looking like now they won't have enough trees in the in the locality to fuel the 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 biomass burning plant in the Midlands, I think in Edenderry. Uh, so they're looking at important pellets, wood pellets from the southeastern United States. Um, and people are saying now that that's going to have a complete, it's just going to destroy the forestry there because they're uh, in that region. They're, the exports from that region went up from 530,000 tonnes in 2009 to 3.89 million tonnes in 2014. So, so in five years. Another industrial scale process going on there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, doesn't sound like it could possibly be sustainable if you're like we already talked about that but like there's there's the figures you know um it's a staggering no, amount sure, how could it be how do you plan that many like not a chance <laughs> so look back to ireland again looking at our so that's how ireland would potentially be affecting forests elsewhere of course it doesn't it doesn't matter much for encouraging our own forests to grow if we're destroying them in other countries but um yeah so what else happened in 2016 well the the one thing that happened, or that seems to be seemed to be happening, was that the forestry program, the forestry program two thousand and fourteen to two thousand and twenty, which is supposed to promote the expansion of forested land, uh, it fell short of its planting targets by a few thousand hectares. Um, a lot of this was to do with, or seems to be to do with, uh, difficulties in convincing people to use their land in that way instead of using it for farming. Um, and to a kind of a scepticism that they will get the same security from the land, the same financial return, um, and that it's kind of once the land is turned over to forestry, there's no going back. Um, and yeah, this tension has been played out quite a lot in Leitrim, where farmers were protesting against tree planting for forestry. Um, saying uh, they making the point that it's it's easier for them. It's easier for people to get a loan for buying land if they're going to use it for forestry rather than farming, and that the reason for that is the lenders are saying 
well, you'll get a greater return if you plant forest than you will if you graze ca- cattle or whatever. Yeah. Um, the other arguments they were making about this was that it, it was contributing to rural isolation and rural depopulation, that it was making it harder for people to make a living. That sounds a bit weird to me. I mean, how would it? How could it? Well, I suppose if it's just that it requires less people to work it. And yeah. you, you can't, it, it affects where houses can be built and houses are being you know removed to replace to, to, to use the land for forestry um, I don't know it's, it's something that would be worth talking to the people actually making those protests and see what they have to say it, it seems Absolutely, to come yeah. it seems to come back again similar to the wind farm issue like wind farms are well I think they're a great idea but you can't just tell people that you're you can't just spring it on someone suddenly yeah, yeah and that's yeah and that's course. people are talking about we see this with every project whether it's a fracking or whatever that people hear about it by seeing the diggers move into the field next door. They don't, no one tells them about it, they just see diggers coming in and ripping up the land and then they say, well, what's going on here? Oh, we're planting forests. Well, no one told me I live next door. Yeah. That kind of thing. And of course, the people responsible for it, the people from the forestry companies to say, oh, we never do it without consulting first. Um, the consultation could be any kind of process, any kind of dodgy thing or useless thing that maybe no one might even see it or mm. that should, you know, put a somewhere in the paper or something like that they were exactly, yeah. somewhere but doesn't mean everyone's going to see it you know yeah we've seen that a lot with the likes of uh, mining or fracking hydraulic fracturing it'll be like a small ad in a local paper no in a section knows. that you glance over yeah yeah nobody knows um, but one thing that struck me when I was looking at this was the the chief of the Leitrim IFA the Irish Farmers Association said that he doesn't want county to be a carbon sink for the aristocrats of Europe and that's I think that's indicative of kind of how this argument gets made a lot because in reading a lot of the articles articles being critical of Ireland's climate legislation or climate action or whatever it always brings up the argument um, that it, oh, if we don't do this we're not going to meet our 2020 targets and then we're going to get fined by the EU or by the UN or whoever it is yeah. we're going to get fined for not meeting their things yeah, yeah. Not not meeting their regulations, yeah. uh, or not not sticking to the agreement, um, that's a terrible argument to use because. It's 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 not. It's it's, this kind of Brexit type mentality, doesn't it? It's it it does it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You'd be very careful the way you approach that kind of thing yeah, and point to the reasons for it. But yeah, I mean, should be fines for for not sticking to climate targets. In fairness, but then yeah, it does raise that kind of problem. So. You know, you need to give the you need to give a teeth though as well. You know, mm. I mean the, the agreements are nothing without teeth. You know. Yeah, I, I and I suppose I, I I might agree with that, but it, it what I'm talking about more so is not the the nature of the agree, agreements themselves, but the the way discussion is shaped, public discourse I suppose is shaped by by the media or by the or UKIP and Nigel Farage. <laughs> yeah, but like looking at looking at what's happening at home, like when you. The, like the overemphasis on that as a reason for needing to plant forests if you don't plant forests you'll be punished like there there, there was much less of an emphasis given to if you don't plant forests um what to do the air quality yeah like the yeah, yeah the, more the, direct reasons yeah yeah absolutely. like the world's becoming uninhabitable yeah. faster than we thought it was yeah that's not like that's 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 not an exaggeration to say that unfortunately like no. it is it is happening a lot faster than we thought it was it'll be a long time it before it reaches this part of the world a couple of generations maybe but it's definitely going to become harder to live here. It's not going to become uninhabitable. Uh, be but it's, than that, to be honest. You know things getting crazy soon. But like that's that's the kind of arguments people need to be hearing, or the kind of reasoning. Not if you don't do this, 
you're going to get a slap in the wrist and want to take some of your money. Bureaucrats are going to come in and, uh, yeah. Because like you said, it it does feed into that us against the world mentality, which is why Trump got elected. It's why UK are leaving the EU. It's why Gert Wilders and all those Egypts in France are rubbing their hands together. Marine Le Pen and all them. It's that same kind of mentality that brings the people back to the tribe, you know, brings people back to the national boundaries. So Marine Le Pen saying very angry, I don't want to have my daughters wearing a burqa. And I was thinking to myself, who wants your fucking daughters to wear a burqa? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, I don't know, you have to laugh or you cry, really, when it comes to that. But back to forestry anyway. Um, so yeah, it's tricky. Is it the reality yeah. of, of the... of us in our day-to-day lives or is it the reality of global capital and how we want a little bit of that we, we want more of that please well we need to sacrifice for it yeah because like it's not it's not we're talking like we were talking me and you about how important it is to retrain people so that they can shift to like carbon neutral industries to like uh, low yeah. emission industries sustainable industries more modern jobs that need to be done like take, things like taking care of the forest that kind of thing yeah, this yeah. is an example off the top of my head you know but it's it, it's not just that simple a task either because we but like, like if we look, take the example of our hometown, which used to be a huge uh, producer of furniture. Yeah. And due to that sort of died out over along over the last twenty years or so, there's not yeah. really any very few people doing it now. Yeah. Um. That was the industry. Now, it it really. used to yeah, with furniture and carpets and mine, but um, it used to produce a lot of that kind of stuff, and that stopped because of the, cheap how cheap labor is in other countries, and it became cheaper to import stuff than to buy stuff from locally that only makes sense because of the movement of global capital yeah it doesn't make sense in real terms it doesn't it's not logical that it's easier and cheaper for someone to buy a chair from thousands of miles away than from two minutes up the road that doesn't make sense it only makes sense if you look at it through a financial lens and it's the same it's the same issue in relation to in relation to this because we're not talking about will what's more important for the people of Leitrim what would benefit them more raising cattle or raising trees we're talking about what would bring in more money for the people who are lending it what what's more what what makes more sense for the banks what makes more sense for the the investment funds yeah and that's what the lens of everything is is moved through i mean basically capital does what it wants it can move across borders very swiftly like uh, invisibly but uh global players can make things happen like i mean there's vulture funds that are controlling what's happening here in Ireland relating in, about the rental market for example and the housing market because the vulture funds own so much now but wh- who are they where are they from so capital moves you know um, in mysterious ways <laughs> <laughs> suddenly in, in the dark of night they're taking over your whole street your whole country even so yeah but it, th- that's it, th- that's what makes that make sense is the fact that that money turned from being a representative goal into something that wasn't pegged to anything anymore mm. and it's just uh it's just a bunch of numbers that yeah the you know the kind of banks that we're talking about big global banks just move around like little dots it's 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 almost meaningless at this stage yeah, yeah. so um yeah but capital still controls our lives 100 percent, and that's as relevant with the environment as with anything yeah a fine example of that is if you look at the culture website uh, which i only did recently for the first time and i'd always known culture in my head it's been like okay they're a semi-state body they're which I've always been a little hazy what that means. I know Bordemona yeah. is as well. It's like so. It's kind of a private company, but it's owned by the state. And I looked at what what it means is, it is completely a private company, but that all the shares are owned by the the relevant minister, which I guess is the I think the minister for agriculture is, is the one who owns all the shares. But they operate completely as a private company, and 
like last year, no, in 2015, they brought in 89.6 million euros. And that's from uh, wood sales, also from selling their land. They've sold a lot of their land. They've had a heavy focus on wind farms. Um, they're building one of the largest ones in Ireland, in Clush Valley in Galway, and solar energy projects as well. Uh, last year, they've stopped selling their land and moved to leasing. Uh, not because it's important for the state to control forestry land, but because it'll bring them in more money. Um, sure, and they've got this five-year growth strategy. Uh, and their aim is to become the leading forestry and land solutions company in Europe. I'll just read this quote from Fergal Leamy, the, their culture chief executive. Achieving our ambition to be the best in Europe will fundamentally transform the business into a highly profitable, well-run company that can increase the dividend paid to our shareholder while still leveraging and maximising the potential of every hectare of land culture owns. That's like it's it, like in, in the article I read this quote from. There was no mention of like what. In what ways the forestry was going to be looked after? Yeah. It was all about how we we're going to sell loads of wood yeah. and make loads of money and become a major international player. Yeah. Yeah. Like that doesn't inspire much confidence in me in terms of like. No. What Enda Kenny was saying at COP twenty one about. Oh, our wonderful, our wonderful carbon sinks. You know, everything's all the business opportunities. You're and be the best little country in the world to do business in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what everything is about. That's the mentality of a guy like uh, you know, this guy from Finnegale. You know, that's what he represent. You know, big business, big business interests. That's 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 their core base. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They represent farmers. They represent big farmers. They represent business. They represent big business. See, I try. I tried to find examples of what the state are doing directly to encourage. A for forest maintenance and to encourage the growth of native trees and like you were saying earlier to create um, proper living ecosystems that will be self-sustaining and that will actually act as, as efficient carbon sinks not just be yeah. a cash crop and I, re I really couldn't find anything yeah. um, other than I think the, was it the Department of Tourism or uh, Falche, Board Falche, um are collaborating with Quilche and they gave them like a half a million euro grant uh, to develop forests as tourist attractions. Again, like it's always there has to be some way to make a book out of it. Yeah. Which is they don't like, see the inherent value in it, which is kind of the fundamental problem, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't see the actual reasons why you would do these things. Yeah. And I'd be a pragmatist about these issues. Like we do live under capitalism, and yeah. it's as terrible as that is. Yeah, you need money to get by in it. So if you can make money in some way, like. Yeah. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. I wouldn't argue against it. Like whatever it takes to keep the the forestry there, if it has to be a tourist attraction, so be it. Well, we but but even the amount of money there, like half a million, it sounds like loads. But you compare it to like it's the company that brought in eight, eighty nine million the previous year. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's it's not much compared to what they're already, the kind of money they're already shifting around. So it shows where the priorities lie. We touched on earlier as well um, about the fact of having to retrain. People, let's say someone who's been working as a farmer, which up until now, you know, if you think about it, if, if you start to take account of how heavily subsidised farming is in the modern age, you start to realise how kind of pointless it is. Not that it's, it's not pointless from the point of view of a farmer who's trying to make a living, obviously, but, I mean, it's obviously not sustainable if they have to be so heavily subsidised. I mean, it's that state welfare is to continue living, you know? So, I mean, there's already something that, you know, these are, you can pay people to do jobs like taking care of as far as other things that if we can afford or if the EU can afford to subsidise so, so heavily farmers, then it's not completely unthinkable that money can be provided instead to do jobs that might not damage the environment at the same time. Yeah. 
Well, we talked about it a little bit. It involves looking at things in a fundamentally different way. We need to get back to being able to ask what do we need on this island for the people here to survive and to live ha happily? Yeah. And what do we need to do to make it so we're not making life unlivable for people in other parts of the world who are currently suffering the consequences of climate change? Yeah. Uh, and what can we do to stop that reaching here as well? We need to be able to think about all these things and not just think about what does the market need? It's always about what the market needs and what yeah, the market absolutely. what the market demands of us. This one-dimensional yeah. you know, rush for money, which is just, in the end, that'll be what kills us really, isn't it? Yeah. But that means, as I said, that you're always fighting against the Donald Trumps of the world, basically. Mm. The guys who are the, the CEOs of the Exxon Mobiles, those kinds of people. The Rex Tillersons. Yeah. So the feeling I'm left with, I guess, after looking at all this stuff is... I suppose the feeling I already had was just being reinforced, which is that we can't rely on the government to deal with these things because it's just far too slow. No. And it's, it's and just they clearly not... don't understand how short of time that we are. Yeah, they're not, they're not making brave enough decisions, basically. They're, they're, no. they're, they're juggling too many interests at the same time. Yeah. It's just not, not going to happen. Like. And as usual, like all the frontline work, like with everything, like with dealing with, with any issue, whether it's like, uh, uh, migrant rights or anything the real work is being done by NGOs or homelessness the yeah. real work is being done by NGOs charities grassroots community uh, yeah. community organisations and individuals you know people uh, all the actual work the footwork is being done by them not to like disparage anything that individuals and government bodies might be doing but like not for the as, most part it's a place where ideas go to die yeah well yeah exactly that's that's the way of putting it and the other thing is the the, the massive need for public education which of course is the government's um, responsibility but it doesn't seem to be doing it um, yeah. but we need to avoid a situation where people like Danny Healy Ray can become representative of their county and stand up in the doll talking about yeah. there being no son at all at all at all and all this kind of crack because um, he's kind of like a little mini Trump he's the closest way, I can yeah. he's got that same kind of he's, he's playing a part he's pretending to be something he's not I think you know what I mean to yeah, a degree he's a joker he's, a he's joker. But he's playing into that us against them sort of thing just to keep himself the in power. versus the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. pathetic really to watch it to be honest. And he's, yeah, he's only able to say those things because there isn't enough information out there about this yet. You know, there's a number of good websites where you can find information about climate change related to Ireland there's all that kind of stuff. But there's no like strong public information campaign really that I can see. Yeah. Um, Still not properly on the agenda, you know? Yeah. Because we need to be able to talk about these without it constantly. Not that not that the jobs issue isn't important. It is. It's hugely important. But we need to. Yeah. It's not even about jobs or people's livelihoods. It's about not always having to bring it back to capital and how finance is important. It needs to be. Yeah. Talking about you know something that's less abstract. And than that, that conversation is gonna stay sticking with that point. You know, is gonna lead us down a bad path where, you know, we're just gonna avoid doing what needs to be done basically. Yeah. For the environment. Yeah, so I guess we're we're nearly done talking about Ireland for now. Um, we've been bad-mouthing the government a lot, so I guess we should give them a bit of props because a few days ago they voted to divest their, the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund from fossil fuels. They voted 90 to 53 in favour. Yeah, apparently becoming um, the first uh, country in the world to do to make that step. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, among the companies who they were previously invested in are TransCanada, the company behind the Keystone XL pipeline, and Peabody Energy, one of the biggest coal companies in the world, and ExxonMobil. Our, our good friends ExxonMobil oh yeah it was brought by Thomas Pringle I was looking up the other day he's an independent 
from a Donegal left leaning. I think he was in Sinn Féin very briefly, mm. but not for very long. So I think he was independent before he was with them and, and after as well. So so uh, fair play to him. Yeah, and then I guess as a an almost comical indicator of the government's inconsistency, uh, Dennis Nocton's department then offered up a number of grants the following day for uh, petroleum-related college courses. So if you want to go and learn about yeah. petrochemical extraction, you can now get a grant from the Department for Climate Action. He was um, friends somewhere he needed to appease. Yeah. And even that wouldn't provide... That's just for college education. It's not so much directly, you know? No, but it's still... It's just an indicator of, like, okay, you made this big step, and then, like, why, why do that? Yeah. Why encourage people to Well, there's no overall strategy yeah. in this minority, you know, government... Mm. Uh, another significant thing, of course, uh, that's uh, being discussed at the moment um, is the bill to ban fracking. That's up for discussion uh, at the moment, and I'll be interviewing Leah Doherty about that at the Dáil on Tuesday. So uh, we'll play that interview now. Right, so I'm here with uh, Leah Doherty of No Fracking Ireland outside the Dáil. Um, a Dáil subcommittee will meet later this afternoon to discuss and examine the prohibition of the exploration and extraction of onshore petroleum bill which is being reported as a bill to ban fracking uh, so there's a presence here at the Dáil this afternoon to urge the committee members to pass it without delay uh, so I'm just going to see if Leah can explain to us what the crack is with the bill exactly so first could you explain briefly the nature of the bill and what exactly will be discussed by the committee today right well the bill was passed at second reading in the Dáil on the 27th of October 2016 so um, when it was passed through the Dáil all the TDs said they didn't want any further delay. Those who spoke about it, um, they didn't need any further research. They didn't want the, do the, the committee to stall the bill, but to just look at the substantive issue of the bill itself and the wording and uh, move on ASAP because the evidence is there, the scientific uh, research has been done, and we should just be passing the bill. But what has happened is, is that when the bill was passed, um, there was a standing order passed with it, which meant it went from um, the doll into a, um, a private meeting where they decided at that private meeting of, a com of the select committee that they were going to bring back in the EPA. Um, CDM Smith, who's a, a company, a pro-fracking company that was uh, got the tender to uh, lead the research program for the EPA, uh, the Geological Survey of Ireland, um, the Petroleum Division, and um, so they're all being brought, brought back in today at the committee meeting this evening. So, um, you know, what that means is, is that on our, the way we are seeing it is, is that the government is trying to basically roll back on the bill and kick the, the can down the road and reopen the debate again on fracking. When, as nearly every TD on the 27th of October, when the bill passed, stated that should not happen. The debate was over. The science is in. Let's get this through the doll. Uh, could you explain in a bit more detail the conflict of interest with the CDM Smith and the EPA? Basically, what they've been doing is they've been extremely active within the industry, the fracking industry, in the Marcellus Shale in, uh, in the States. They've also been active in Poland when um, fracking companies were uh, given license for exploration there. So CDM Smith are avidly a pro-fracking company that even on their website they uh, say they are. And um, when the fracking ban came out in and was um, finalized in New York State in 2015, CDM Smith were the company and their CEO came out to criticize the ban and say that it was a ban that was 
um, only uh, dealt with emotions rather than science. So this is the company that we're dealing with that has been uh, dealing with the study on fracking in Ireland. Okay, so it wouldn't give you much confidence really. Um, I, you, I guess you've already touched on the reasons for this a little bit, but I've read that some Leitrim County councillors and other uh, individuals from the northwest have expressed doubt that this will actually be the end of fracking in Ireland. Could you comment on that a bit more? Yeah. Um, look, a lot of people know at the minute that there's a lot of bills going through the doll at the minute, and Fianna Fáil, uh, Sinn Féin, Labour, uh, Independence, but Fianna Fáil mainly, and this is where the problem lies, they're backing bills that are seem populist, that, you know, the divestment bill, for example, the fracking bill, and um, a lot of people fear that really... This is just um, kind of a PR exercise by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, who are also backing these bills. And, you know, they're easily at this stage, we're delighted we've got to this stage, but they can easily throw a spanner in the work in the divestment from fossil fuels bill or this bill as well. So that's why we're delighted that it's come to this stage, but that's why we're extremely concerned that really, you know, it's very easy for either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael to throw a spanner in the works as they're doing with this bill right now by bringing back in the EPA and opening up the debate on fracking. So there's a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of kind of disbelief. This bill was brought about um, by Tony McLaughlin, who is a Fianna Gael TD from Sligo. And it was brought, announced on the day of when the general election, the last general election was called. And we were extremely suspicious that really this is just an exercise for maintaining a Fine Gael seat in that area. Okay, thanks, Leo. And so that's it for the minute for uh, focusing on issues at home. Um, and we're just going to talk uh, briefly about uh, immigration, the, the movement of people across borders, uh, the movement of people, which is something we've done uh, since we started walking upright, we've always moved, we always will move, yeah. and there's nothing you can do to stop us, we're always going to move. Um, it's a political borders existed on geographies. Yeah, it's one of the fundamental signs of life is movement, we're just always going to do it. Um, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we're talking about who's allowed to go where. Um, but it would, just, it would be strange to kind of have a, a year review and not talk about this, considering that's yeah. like how, how just severe the situation is. And and if it's worth talk, it's worth talking about it in relation to climate change because, um, I mean, rightly or wrongly, the focus tends to be on people coming from the Middle East to escape Syria and escape the. Because there's been a, there's been a collection of wars in the Middle East happening at the same time. Mm. There's Syria is the one that gets the most mentions, but then obviously there's Iraq is still, you know, constant warfare. There's Yemen. There's been unrest in well, maybe to lesser degrees in other places. So, um, and Afghanistan is still destroyed after years and years of war. So you have people coming from all those countries and more, just constantly. So, it's uh, and it's something that I can't imagine. It, you know, it it did kind of slow down a bit recently compared to the heights that it reached in the last year or so. Mm. Kind of slow down a bit coming into Europe a bit less so, especially coming into winter and what have you. Then there tends to be an uptick again around summer, mm. but. Um, Regardless of, I mean, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be all that optimistic that the levels of war are necessarily going to even decrease over the next few no. years. But as time goes on, what's for sure is that the proportion of people moving because of, uh, basically climate migration because mm. of not being able to survive or to live where they exist now is mm. it's it's happening. It's going to happen for sure. It's a case of to what degree, at what stage it happens, and how bad yeah. it is, and it's going to be bad. 
and it's going to be bad. It's going to be a permanent thing. It's going to be a permanent feature. Is and it, you know, so I predict a lot of uh, I predict a lot of violence around it actually. Yeah. Definitely. You know, yeah, people coming so. from those countries yeah. now into places like you know to Trump's America and 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 to any any kind of Eurocentric kind of white Northern European country. The way things are becoming, as you were saying earlier, about all of the right wing people who've met recently in the last few weeks, the, the right wing, uh, the European right wing leaders, the Gert Wilders and uh, Marine Le Pen and and uh, and uh, Alternative for Deutschland, uh, all these have all had a meeting quite recently, so they're gonna kind of push back against any kind of migration to other countries. Mm-hmm. Let's see, might even see some other countries leave the EU, although I think it's a little bit less likely, but it seems less. Um, less impossible than it did in the past in any case mm. so I so it's going to be I can only imagine being violent so there's something that we're going to have to be well organised for in the next yeah. couple of decades is um, migrant solidarity work and practical things and yeah. getting people into your less dangerous country of residence yeah because like you said the, the it's I guess it's kind of harder to judge when the war is going to dissipate when things are going to settle down in that regard yeah. But what we can say with, not with certainty, you so know. So it's slightly more settled than it was. There's a ceasefire that's been lasting, but it's not a 100% ceasefire as it never is. But What we can say with a bit more certainty, I suppose, is that those displaced by climate specifically are going to increase, even if the... I mean, there's an argument to be yeah. made that the war is being exacerbated by climate change already, that warlike situations are... Conflict is being exacerbated by climate change. Yeah. But, uh, st- studies reckon that now... Those displaced by climate, purely by climate, are about half those displaced by war. I don't know how you come up with these metrics, but... It's not an exact science, but, no. yeah. And I guess a, a, an indicator of how Eurocentric these discussions, even discussions about climate change, talking about the Paris summit and stuff like that, which seem very positive, you know, world leaders agreeing on certain things. Yeah. And um, mind you, it's, it's always the leaders of countries that are most hard hit who make real headway at these talks. But even so, the the, yeah. the agreed goal of, okay, we'll keep it to less than two degrees warming, that is going to be really hard. And it's it's even that is not enough to prevent um, certain parts of the Middle East and Africa becoming uninhabitable. Yeah. Um, like we've got the, looking at research from the Max Planck, the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry and the Cyprus Institute, who have noted that the number of hot days in that region have doubled since 1970 and that that's going to increase exponentially. So we're going to see an increase there of extremely hot days and the extension of more frequent heat waves. So yeah. instead of like right now, a heat wave could be 16 days. By mid-century, it's going to be about 80. By the end of the century, it's going to be about 118. And they're going to be happening about yeah, 10 times more frequently. Yeah, at that stage. So what you're, lo- what, yeah, what you're talking about here is not, it's not just an issue of people not being able to grow their crops or being able to find adequate drinking water. It's just, it, it will just be too hot for people to exist there. Yeah. So that's happening like even if people were not fighting at all and getting on really well together, the land will literally just be unlivable. So people are going to have to come to us. They're going to have to come over yeah. here. And like you said, we need to we need to get ready for that and to like make sure we're able to accept people. Like we live on an island that used to have a population of 8 million people before the yeah. the, the so-called that famine. bigger population, yeah. And right now we're at around half that. There was probably more than 8 million. That's 8 million due to the census. I'm sure there was more than that. Yeah. Like the island that we live on now can hold a lot of people, it can feed a lot of people. Um we're capable of taking people in. Um a huge task ahead of us as well as education in relation to climate is like 
like more of an ideological battle, I suppose, about yeah. what to be valued. Um, like I read that article recently in the Times by uh, I can't think of his name, where he was talking about demographic extinction, low birth rates amongst, uh, I think what he called indigenous Europeans, which is kind yeah. of a strange thing. That's like he made some very nonsensical arguments for a guy who was a professor in UCC yeah. or whatever. I mean, I'm I'm being a bit pedantic here, but even the phrase demographic extinction. Like a demographic is, it's a way of categorizing people so you can sell them stuff more efficiently. Yeah. It's not like a, th- it's not a thing that can go extinct, you know? Yeah. Like wild salmon can go extinct. Wild salmon is going extinct. Polar bears are going extinct. It's not a species in other words. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 that's a nonsensical thing to say. And it's, that's the kind of stuff we're up against though. Because it can sound, when you say something like that, it sounds really proper. It sounds like it's something you have to worry about. He made it sound very scientific. It was actually very unscientific. Like he made an argument that if current trends continue in Italy, then the, you know, the, the indigenous, you know, indigenous and in big, you know, quotation marks, yeah. uh, Italian, uh, you know, white Italians would ever be less than half the population, you know? Mm. So he's saying by, by the stage 2200, or something like that. So in a couple of hundred years, in 300 years, something like that. And I kind of saying like, that's kind of take, to, is, it, is it that trend's going to continue exactly like that for a hundred years? Mm. And there's going to be no change in, I made I made the argument that it's kind of like saying, well, I've grown two meters in thirty years, therefore in three hundred years I will be twenty meters tall. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. That that was the kind of argument that this professor of biochemistry or whatever it was was using. That's another thing. He wasn't like he was making comments about demographics, and um, I wouldn't be as dismissive as, as a, a science maybe, but. But he was talking about demographics or whatever, and th- and he's he's a professor of biochemistry or something like that. Mm. I think yeah. he's making comments about the thing like a mix between a demographic argument and a sociological argument that was just extremely racist, right wing, and yeah. now to make it sound kind of just about nice enough to appear in the Irish Times. William Rev- Revel, is that his William name? Revel? Yeah, William Revel. Yeah, so stick to the day job, William. In other words, he's also very pro life. Yeah, and he had a thing. He had his uh, something appear in uh, the Alive magazine or whatever it was. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, yeah, un unscientific tripe. Um. So yeah, we've gone a little off the topic of the environment, but I think that's okay sometimes. Um. Yeah. Uh. But it's I I do think it's really important to like, to remember that like as I, I know as Professor James Lovelock um pointed out that there's going to be, as the climate becomes more extreme, um there's going to, what we'll be left with islands of habitability, and yeah. one of those islands will be the islands of. Britain and Ireland or this general region because yeah. like weather will become more extreme but it'll be generally more temperate than the rest of the world so people are going to have to live here because there's not going to be many other places for a lot of people yeah um, so yeah like we need to be like are we prepared to are our doors open to people are we prepared for that because this isn't going to stop it's only going to yeah it's only going to increase and I guess we need to think about what we value do we like are we going to keep trying to be the lapdog of the financial of, 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 of global capital of the, the investment funds or are we going to start looking at what the people who live here need and what the people who are coming here to live need yeah there's little I think we have we can be in a small country that we are we can we can do things that can then be an example like divesting from fossil fuels that kind of thing mm. and there are times when environmental campaigns in Ireland have a lot of groundswell of support it was like that with the 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 around nuclear reactors decades ago before we were born even there was a lot of support for that so Ireland is completely non nuclear and um 
I know there's just general more sensibility about the land because the type of country that we are. Because of the fact we've been agricultural even. So there you go. Mm. Um, so I think that uh, I'd still be, you know, we can we can be a small example of getting the right thing done. Yeah. But we need to, I suppose we need to build now. Because yeah. it's going to get tough. So yeah. we need to start straight away. I mean, I remain optimistic because like, another significant thing that happened this year was... Um, Pegida were chased off the streets of Dublin unceremoniously by a very large yes. crowd of people. Um, yeah. It made me very happy. I don't know about you. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that that would give me hope that, like... Yeah, Dublin is a strong left, you know. Yeah. So you don't mess with it too much. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, we, we'll leave it at that for now, but we'll just leave you with this poem by uh, Christy Gaffney. This is a, a recording I made at the... In the the squat in Grange Gorman, which is sadly no longer there, it's been it's been it's been raised, evicted and raised to build more student accommodation because we need more of that. Um, well, they need to make a lot of money there, Tommy. They do, yeah. Again, don't you know there's a lot of money to be made around here? There is, yeah. There is <laughs> D seven. It's a hotbed, but um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is a poem by Christy Gaffney uh, about his experiences uh, in a refugee camp in either Dunkirk or Calais. I'm not sure, and the people he met there, and. Um, so yeah, we'll just leave it with that. It's got a poem for a Kurdish baker. Babylon, you did not cry when the bombs fell from the sky and the desert blew in only tear gas from the eastern wind. Babylon, you did not cry when your mother could fight no more and trained you in rifle and pistol and machines of death, though you wept inside for every face you saw for the very last triumph to the absolute reality of your rifle scope. Babylon, you did not cry when I held you at night next to a homemade stove to ward away the cold and the hunger and the shaking and the shingles and the sickness and other demons of man's making. Babylon, you did not cry when your cousin died as only a Kurd could, holding the line against fanatics of hate in the mountains just south of Sinjar, with his daughter on his back and his Sanjir in his left hand, Babanan. You did not cry when you strammed to the Straits of Bosphorus and ran from Hungary to France, thinking only of how your sisters would hold hands and dance in the shisha cafes only months before they were raped and finally sold to the house of Saad Babanan. You did not cry when you realised you could no longer return and visit the school where you learned the songs you sang to me, the poems you read to me, the sayings you said to me that you loved so, they're all just rubble now. Babanan, you did not cry when your brother fell from the axis of the truck and was crushed to death between borders trying to reach his mother in Manchester. Babanan, you did not cry when you asked me of love in Ireland and marriage. Babanan, you did not cry when you woke in the night shaking from PTSD, needing fire in your throat to send you back the dream of still heavens instead, where the world will end at a techno concert in Wicklow and not in the hell of Cobain. Babanan, you did not cry when the gangsters and the smugglers burnt down the jungle to hunt out those who could pay no more, finally broken, beaten and childless. Four times, Babanan, four times, Babanan, four times, Babanan, four times, Babanan, you cried four times and no more. Four times when word finally came that no longer your father, the baker, could lift the flower or beat the dough, too old now, only the sight of a sniper left to him a gift from God that he now only used for love. A love that brought him each morning to the top of the minarets to look for you so he could scream and rant and rage in the night all frail and dying so he could ululate your name in holy holy praise and taunt the traitors with one just one final finite war cry in the night against the machinery of mutilation murder hate rape that burn 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 one final gentle yelp that you have come home with your father's gun they have not met you you are his only son Bob and Nan, 
I love you, Babanan, and I will be there for you, there in the ocean floating to a new life, there in Rojava rowing back at fascism come again, there in the night while you dream of your father, there in the bakery you built in the jungle in your daddy's honour. Inshallah, I will be there with you forever, Babanan.